Well, greetings, brethren, and welcome to the Gospel according to Isaiah. Uh, last week we we began in chapter one. We didn't quite finish, so I want to finish today. Uh, Isaiah is called considered the head of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. Uh, he comes first uh, because it's such a powerful book, and so I'm just thrilled that we're able to return to this book and cover the first the first part of, of the book. We we covered Second Isaiah, which is chapters 40 to 66. A lot of good news in there. We got to understand the gospel. What is this good news that Isaiah saw? And a lot of people see the first section, first Isaiah, as written by somebody else um, because it tends to focus more on judgment and they see sort of Old Testament versus New Testament. But in fact, as we read it line by line, even in chapter 1, the whole story of the good news, the gospel, is right here in chapter 1. So I want to finish uh, chapter 1 and just a little bit of uh, chapter 2 today. And then it uh, shouldn't take us long, I think maybe half an hour or so. Uh, and then Pastor Murray is going to join us for a little bit of Q&A. So please, any questions you have about the Psalms, which we covered, we've covered up to book 4 in the Psalms so far. And any questions you have of what I covered last week and what I'll cover today, uh, please feel free. Um, we will be able to share your comments if you post them on YouTube and also if you post them on the cgi.online.church. Uh, we'll be, I'll be able to share my screen so we can do that. Uh, unfortunately, we're not connected to Facebook directly, uh, so we cannot post your comments uh, from Facebook, but we can certainly uh, monitor those comments as well. And uh, we will be able to respond to those questions. Let's uh, open with a word of prayer. And uh, then we can get into the topic for tonight. And I was just rushing from another meeting. So let me just uh, put the banner up here for the sake of the archive. uh, So that people, everybody knows if they're not watching live, what it is we are discussing tonight. We'll open with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, great God Almighty, Uh, We rejoice before you, Father, because you've not left us without guidance. You've not left us in the dark, Father. Uh, Your word is here. It's thousands of years old. And yet you've blessed us that we have access to it. We have access to these powerful minds that you gave to Moses and Isaiah and Jeremiah and others. And Christ himself came to the earth. And we have access to his words. Uh, We just thank you so much, Father, for this treasure that we have access to. And although we're heading into very, very difficult times globally, uh, at the same time, all of this is signaling the good news that lies ahead of us. And we just thank you, Father, not only that we have understanding and deepening our understanding of this good news which is coming, but that we, of all people, have the opportunity to proclaim it and to rejoice in proclaiming it, regardless of the cost. We thank you, Father. We ask your blessing on our study so that we can more deeply understand your will, so that we can more uh, proclaim it more accurately. Thank you, Lord God Almighty. We, we bless you. We thank you. And we ask all of this in Jesus' most holy name. Amen. Let me, brethren, uh, go ahead and share my screen so that we can get into the topic uh, for tonight. Isaiah 1. And uh, where we were last week, we began in Isaiah 1. I just want to just go back over just a couple of verses before we continue where we had uh, left off. It's the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So, so this is a vision. Isaiah received this vision, 
And the vision is concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So if we're going to be accurate in our interpretation, in our understanding, in our exegesis of the text, we, we have to be faithful to the opening, the introduction of what Isaiah himself tells us is that this is a vision he received regarding and concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So we have to hold that in view as we go through the text. This is a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of, and then he lists these kings, which is like, um, this, this means this man was in his ministry somewhere between 60 to 80 years of ministry. As we look at the different um, uh, periods of time that these kings reigned over uh, Judah, these kings of Judah. So, so this is concerning them, and he received this vision during these days. And then in verse 4, uh, we really see here the depth of depravity. After reading chapter 1, uh, the conclusion that I've come to is there is no more sinful people on the planet than Judah. This, they, they, they just win the record beyond Sodom and Gomorrah. They, they are the extreme of depravity. I'm not saying this. I'm just reading the text, right? I'd like to say, oh, we're all the same and it's no problem. And, you know, we all have our issues. But when I read the text, I can't say that. When I read the text and read it carefully, I have to say, wow, these people in God's books go, they they win the, the, the award for depravity because you know, these Gentile nations, clearly, you know, you go into Canaan and they're full of depravity. And that's why, in fact, they were to be removed from the land and the land was being given to Israel. But as much as they were full of depravity, they were not in covenant with God. They did not have Torah. They did not have the, the guidance and, and the, the, the personal relationship with the God of the universe. And so I'm reading Isaiah 1. And, and I'm feeling God's pain as he, he writes through Isaiah that he has brought up these children and they have rebelled against him. And, and the rebellion is no small thing. It is extreme depravity. So not only are, 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 is this nation full of idolatry and adultery and depravity, but they have the Torah. And they were invited into a personal covenant with the God of the universe. And then, and, and not only that, they saw the northern tribes and the depravity of the northern tribes. And then the text says, not only did they see that, they saw it, they did not take warning. They, they exceeded the depravity of the northern tribes of Israel. So I, I read this and I'm like, wow, okay. The nation that gets the award for the most depraved nation on the planet is Judah. I'm not, I'm just reading the text. Ah, sinful nation, verse four. A people laden with iniquity, iniquity, a seed of evildoers. Remember, they have Torah. Children that are corruptors, they have forsaken the Lord. They have provoked the Holy One of Israel unto anger. They are gone away backward. And I said last week that, you know, this term here, how, how, uh, Isaiah's favorite way of referring to the God of the universe, the creator, is the Holy One of Israel. And I believe I said last week, this verse 4 is the first clue that we have that there's actually good news for these people. 
that their corruption is not the end of the story. Their depravity is not the end of the story. It's a big part of the story, but it's not the end of the story. That, they, that, that I would read this and think, okay, these guys are gone. This, this is, this is uh, wipe them out, get rid of them, start over with somebody else. That's not the story. That, yeah, as, uh, this extreme depravity that has afflicted this nation is going to be followed with extreme exaltation and glorification of this nation. This is the vision that Isaiah received concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That Judah and Jerusalem are beyond the pale as far as corruption and depravity goes. But Judah and Jerusalem will be exalted above all nations on the planet ever. That they will suffer more than any other nation. But that suffering will be a purification process that will result in them being glorified more than any other nation and all nations looking to them for leadership. This is the good news. This is the gospel, according to Isaiah. So I said that last week, this, this term, the Holy One of Israel, is the first clue that there's good news here. It's not over. That the Creator has identified Himself with Israel forever. Therefore, Israel will exist forever. Therefore, Judah will not be completely destroyed, nor will the other tribes of Israel. That somehow there's going to be a way that God works to bring all the tribes back into the covenanted land and exalt them above all other nations. And that's the good news, that God has not, he has not um, turned back on his covenant promises. I think more accurately than to say that verse 4 is the first indication that there's good news in here somewhere. Uh, I, I think, really, we need to go back to the very first one, actually, the vision of Isaiah. And I know some of you pronounce differently than I do, but the, the Hebrew is Yesha'ayahu. Uh, Yesha'ayahu. The vision of Yesha'ayahu. And actually, the name of the prophet in verse 1 is actually the first indication that there is good news here. Yesha'ayahu means God saves. God saves. And so just from his name, God saves. Saves who? Well, it's concerning Judah and Jerusalem. So, so he, in this story, the, the very name of the man who received the vision tells us actually there's good news in here. Yes, verse 4 is an early indication, but the earliest indication is right in verse 1. So I wanted to just mention that. Verse 5, now we get, we're kind of doubling down now on the indication that there's good news in here. Verse 5, why should you be stricken anymore? Okay, you, so you've been struck down, uh, and you're going to be, but why? You, you don't need to go through this. So there's a sense that although they're corrupt, from God's perspective, there's a way out. Why should you be stricken anymore? You will revolt more and more. The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. And then he goes on now to show how these children that he has raised up have rebelled against him. Let's drop down now to the back half of chapter 1, where he says, Your princes, your leaders, <clears throat> are rebellious. And it's amazing. When I read verse 23, you know, this is about, this is concerning Judah and Jerusalem. I'm in Canada. Most of, many of our listeners are in America. But whatever nation it is, 
verse 23 captures the corruption of all of our nations. Your leaders are rebellious. I don't care if they can put on pretty dresses and, and nice suits, fancy suits, and, and they can put on cologne and smell nice or perfume, and they can get a haircut and shave. I don't care. I care about their fruit. By their fruits you shall know them. And, and their leaders are rebellious. They, they, they don't care about the word of God. They've, they've cast it to the ground. And they are companions of thieves. Yeah, they're passing policy. Oh, we need to help this nation. We need to, um, well, we need to put together um, uh, funding for this nation. Why? Because we care about the nation? No, because it's a mechanism to get that money to come back into our bank accounts. And so we're putting together these big packages and dealing with billions and trillions of dollars, hundreds of millions, billions, trillions of dollars, and we're making it look like we care for people, and all the while the money's funneling back into our bank accounts. Companions of thieves. And we've got to open up borders so that thieves can get back to business. The human trafficking was shut down because the border wasn't open. Drug trafficking was shut down because the border wasn't open. Open up the borders, back to business. Companions of thieves, everyone loves gifts. This is where Judah sank to. And we see the same thing almost in every nation, easily bribed. They've been corrupted, they've been compromised, and they love gifts. And they follow after rewards. And some of these people have very high offices. And we don't have a media anymore that does any sort of investigative journalism. It's just opinion pieces. Again, I can put on a nice suit. I was going to say I can put on a pretty dress. I suppose I can. I won't. But a woman can put on a pretty dress, makeup. These are just actors. They come in front of the screen. They've got a script. They could never be off script. So we study the scriptures. We're off script. We're studying the scripture. We do the study and we talk off script. You have questions, you ask us, we answer off script. Because this is coming from the heart. These people don't speak from the heart. They speak from a script that somebody else has written. And they put on a nice suit and tie and they try to look uh, respectable. Put on dress and makeup and have hairstyle. Uh, makeup, come on, fix me up. And then they just say whatever they've been told. And there's no investigation. If we had a media that could hold the government accountable, this we, we could have true fairness in government. But now governments can just overstep because there's nobody investigating. They follow after rewards, including the media. They're paid off. They judge not the fatherless. Beautiful rhetoric notwithstanding. Beautiful rhetoric notwithstanding. And we're moving now, all of this corruption in government, we're moving away from rule of law based on the Judeo-Christian principles to what I call rule by rhetoric. Who has the prettiest words that can seduce fools? And get fools rioting in the streets and holding up placards and supporting them. And it's just rhetoric. There's no action. There's nothing to support what they do. Just rule by rhetoric. And that's dangerous. Rule by rhetoric means millions of people will be slaughtered and put to death. Because I can just put pretty words around it. And label them whatever I want. As opposed to rule by law where even I as the lawgiver, me as the lawgiver, I am subject to the law. Moses was subject to the very law that he administered. That's rule by law. Nobody's above the law. Rule by rhetoric, I create the laws, and I change them at will. And it's dangerous. 
and a lot of rhetoric about the poor and the fatherless, but we destroy them. They do not judge the fatherless, neither does the cause of the widow come unto them. Beautiful rhetoric notwithstanding. They talk about it, but decade after decade after decade, the poor get poorer. And the poor continue to be seduced by their rhetoric. And they don't stop and say, well, wait a minute, we've been at this for like a hundred years. And it's getting worse. So now we have a new administration. I guarantee you, the economy is going to get worse. Beautiful rhetoric notwithstanding. All talk, no action. And I don't know if we're ready, brethren, for a crashed economy. I don't know if we understand what it means. I think we've had it so good for so long in the West that we've taken it for granted. And it's outside of our imagination. You know, I, I turn on the light switch, I expect light. I turn on the heat, I expect heat. In fact, I don't even turn it off. It just automatically manages itself. And I just expect these things. In the West, I don't think we fully can appreciate what a crashed economy means. And a lot of us are just running up debt, credit card debt, all kinds of debt, and we don't know what we're doing here. Tighten your belts, brethren. Get ready. The, the, the prudent man foresees the evil and hides himself. That this is going to be epic. That this is going to be epic. And the Christian, the true follower of Christ, it doesn't, it, I'm going to say it doesn't matter, it matters. But it doesn't matter in the sense that we, we have our orientation. And, and Pastor Murray gave this sermon around the compass and the clock. Our compass is pointing in the right direction, and we know the time. And we know that the difficulty is a short time, but we have to get through it. And so we have our principle. All the big decisions have been made. So whenever we're faced with a crisis or a decision that we have to make under a crisis, there's no decision. We've already made the big decisions. And so we just carry on and we preach this gospel, regardless of consequences. But I think a lot of these uh, Christians among us who are chanting and fighting for social justice and they want a better world. I don't th if you're here listening, I, 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 I pray for you. Because I don't think you're ready for a horrible world. You thought you could make this a better world. And we're heading into a nightmare. And if you're attached to this world, you're, you're going to suffer incredible anxiety and depression. And it's, it's going to burden you. But if we, if we have already separated ourselves from this world, yeah, we will enjoy the benefits of this world while we have them. All to the glory of God. But we were never attached to this world. So if everything is taken away from us, that's okay. Naked I came into this world, and naked I'll go out. So this, this rhetoric and this seduction by rhetoric, and even in the church, it just deeply saddens me. And I pray, I pray, I pray, I pray, that the brethren will wake up and snap out of it and realize, okay, this is real. This just got real. And I need to steady myself and establish myself in the truth so that no matter what happens, it doesn't change my establishment in the truth. Verse 24. Therefore, says the Lord, the Lord of hosts. Now he calls him the mighty one of Israel. Well, that's interesting. Israel is corrupt. Israel has turned their back on the covenant. And yet he still identifies himself not only now as the holy one of Israel, but now the mighty one of Israel that he's going to use these Gentile nations to give Israel and specifically Judah and even more specifically Jerusalem 
such a whipping. You know, in, 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 in uh, Jamaica, we call this a hiding. They're going to get a hiding. I don't know what uh, other countries would, would call this, but this is going to be such, this is going to be a level of tribulation, the likes of which the world has never seen. But it's going to be inflicted on Judah and Jerusalem by Gentile nations. They're going to surround Jerusalem and completely wipe it out. No, I shouldn't say completely wipe it out, but wipe it out. It's going to be no nation will ever suffer the way Judah, Jerusalem, and, and by extension Israel will suffer. And yet he identifies himself as the mighty one of Israel. And in Pastor Murray's most recent uh, sermon, he talked about flipping the script. That although uh, Judah and Israel are going to be suffering all of these curses, eventually the mighty one of Israel will step in, flip the script, and the Gentile nations are going to suffer these curses as God redeems his people. And so he, good news here, there's the gospel embedded in this one phrase, the mighty one of Israel. Ah, I will ease me of my adversaries and avenge me of my enemies. So these enemies, the enemies of Israel, the Gentile nations, as they uh, are enemies of Israel and specifically Judah, they become the enemies of God. And they're identified as the enemies of God because they're against his agenda. But here in Isaiah 1, God is also calling out those within Judah, these leaders within Judah who are leading the people astray, people within Jerusalem, within the covenant community, they have become God's enemies. And God is not joking. They either repent or he will ease himself of his adversaries and his enemies. Now, let's, let's listen to Jeremiah. Jeremiah now comes after Isaiah, and he's prophesying to the same people, Judah and Jerusalem. And let's listen to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 11. Jeremiah 11 and verse 1. The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord saying, what did it say? Hear you the words of this covenant. The prophets were always there to remind Israel and to remind Judah, we're in a covenant relationship here. And to go to the kings and say, hey, you're stepping outside of the covenant. So the kings had authority, but so did the prophets. And the prophets created this check and balance with that authority that the kings had. And so Jeremiah is saying to them, hear the words, hear you the words of this covenant and speak unto the men of Judah and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Okay, so this is also to Judah and Jerusalem. And say you unto them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Cursed be the man that obeys not the words of this covenant. Wow, okay. So this covenant, this, this covenant is fixed. It's a thing. It's a thing that cannot be removed. You, God doesn't put the covenant in place and then say, okay, this isn't, really isn't working out. Uh, scrap that. Let me do something else. Men do this, right? Men do this. Men make an agreement, and then they don't live up to it. The closest thing we have to covenant is marriage. So men will make an agreement, but they won't live up to it. God is not like this. And he wants us to understand his character and to become like him. That when he speaks, that's it. It's as good as done. And when he enters into covenant, he never comes out of the covenant. There is no, there's no covenant that God has entered into, and then he's, come, he's backed out of it. This, this, this is not God. The very definition of God is the, the power of his word and his ability to be faithful to his word. 
This is who we serve. This is the God. So he says here, cursed be the man that obeys not the words of this covenant. He doesn't say, um, okay, and that's the end of the covenant. No. If you don't obey the words of covenant, the curse clauses of the covenant come into effect, and you don't want that. The covenant doesn't leave. It just takes on a different nature. So, verse 4. Cursed be the man, verse 3, that obeys not the words of this covenant, which I commanded your fathers in the day that I brought them forth out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Obey my voice and do them according to all which I command you. So shall you be my people and I will be your God. This, this is how it's going to work. And I just realized I should have checked the chat just to make sure that my um, volume is working. I'm not seeing any comments or questions on the voice, so I'm assuming everything's great there. Should have done that earlier. So, um, and please, brethren, Pastor Murray's going to join me. So any questions, comments you have, we can, we can take those. So obey my voice, and this is how you will be my people, and I will be your God. This was the covenant. That I may perform the oath which I have sworn unto your fathers. Okay. So the covenant includes this oath. The covenant is, this, is, is set up so that God can perform the oath which was sworn to the fathers. So when they came out of Egypt, the, the oath was already in place. God already committed himself to this oath. And now they come out of Egypt and he enters into this covenant with them so that he can perform the oath which was sworn to the fathers. And that means it can't be reversed. To give them, and notice now, notice, because sometimes in our versions of Christianity, we don't really understand the covenant. We've departed from the understanding of the covenant. But the covenant includes land. It's not just about a relationship between two parties. It also includes real estate. And so he's saying, I want to perform this oath. And I put the covenant in place so that I can perform this oath that I may perform the oath which I have sworn unto your fathers, to give them a land flowing with milk and honey, as it is this day. That, that's what I'm trying to do. Then answered I, uh, Jeremiah, and said, So be it, O Lord. Then the Lord said unto me, Proclaim all these words in the cities of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem. Again, this is concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Saying, Hear you the words of this covenant and do them. For I earnestly protested unto your fathers in the day that I brought them up out of the land of Egypt, even unto this day, rising early and protesting, saying, Obey my voice. I really want to do this for you. But we have to be in a relationship where there's high trust and you're doing the things that I've asked you to do. Obey my voice, yet they obeyed not, nor inclined their ear. They weren't interested but walked after walked everyone in the imagination of their evil heart. Therefore, listen to this now, does God abandon, does God make covenants and then scrap them and start over? Listen. They obeyed not, nor inclined their ear. They just weren't interested. Instead, walked everyone in the imagination of their evil heart. Therefore, I will bring upon them, what will I bring upon them? Will I just get, like, erratic and just do something crazy out of my anger? Like, turn them into apes and pigs? No. Disobedience 
is accounted for within the framework of the covenant. Therefore, I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant. You, you, you think I was joking? Words that come out of the mouth of God are permanent. Words that come out of the mouth of God are forever. And this promise that he made to Abraham is forever. This, this covenant that, that cascaded down to Israel is forever. Now, this covenant that he entered into with Moses in order to bring about the oath that he swore to the fathers, it has conditions. It, it, has, it has blessings for obedience and it has curses for disobedience. And so there, I will bring upon them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did them not. They've activated the curse clauses. But the curse clauses are not for their utter destruction. It's for their purification because they can't get out of the covenant. God is in covenant with Judah and Jerusalem. And there's no escaping this covenant. The only way is through the covenant. You can't get out of the covenant. You have to go through the covenant. And that means because you've broken the covenant, you, you've, you've disobeyed the covenant, you have to go through the curses of the covenant. And that is going to shake you up to such an extent when the abomination that makes desolate strikes Jerusalem. They will have no option but to realize their only hope is in the God who saves. And so they have to now go through the curses of the covenant to come out the other end, hopefully purified. Or they'll be ashes under the feet of the righteous. I will bring up on them all the words of this covenant, which I commanded them to do, but they did them not. And the Lord said unto me, a conspiracy is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Now, I know some of you don't believe in conspiracies. Everything is a conspiracy. Oh, conspiracy theory. Everything's a conspiracy theory. There's no conspiracy fact in some of our perspectives. But according to scripture, Satan is the biggest conspirator. And there are conspiratorial designs in the world. And here, even among the people of God, there's a conspiracy found among the men of Judah. So if we're, if we're students of the scripture, we understand that conspiracy is a real thing. Satan works in the dark. And there is such a thing as conspiracy. There is conspiracy fact. Not everything. Conspiracy theory, this dismissive thing where we can just laugh and dismiss everybody. The Bible says there is such a thing as conspiracy. A conspiracy is found among the men of Judah and among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. They are turned back to the iniquities of their forefathers, which refused to hear my words, and they went after other gods to serve them. The house of Israel and the house of Judah have broken my covenant, which I made with their fathers. Therefore, thus says the Lord, behold, I will bring evil upon them. According to the covenant, they have activated the curse clauses. Therefore, I will bring evil upon them, catastrophe upon them, not, not evil as in God is evil. No, I will bring the catastrophe that I told them I would bring on them, according to covenant, uh, upon them, which they shall not be able to escape. And though they shall cry unto me, I will not hearken unto them. They have to go through this. And that's why Christ said when he was here, I, I, I long to gather you, but you wouldn't have it. Oh, well. And I will turn my hand upon you and purely... Listen to this. Why, why these curse clauses? I will turn my hand upon you and purely purge away your dross 
and take away all your sins. So this is back to Isaiah. So Isaiah now is, is showing the good news is actually here, that all of this, this activation of the curse clauses is a purging process. We're going to take away the dross, we're going to take away the tin, and we're going to replace it with real quality. And I will restore your judges as at the first. So you, you will be in relationship with me one way or the other. We're going to get rid of all the rebels. We're going to put everybody else through a purification process. And we're going to have this nation in covenant with God, according to the promises made to the fathers in the land that was promised to the fathers. And I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterward, even though you've rebelled against me, I brought you up. You've rebelled against me. You're full of corruption. The whole thing is sick. You're, you're like putrefying wounds. You're disgusting. But I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. This is speaking to Judah and Jerusalem. And afterward, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. So this city of Jerusalem, that's on the, that we all, it's in the news. <clears throat> and it's full of violence, it's full of corruption. The whole world is going to look to Jerusalem. And the whole world is going to be modeled after Jerusalem. And the nation of Judah will be there and will be respected as God's people, despite their heritage, despite their history. You will be called the city of righteousness. So all over the world, they'll be calling Jerusalem the city of righteousness and the faithful city. Zion shall be redeemed. Here, here's the gospel. This is the good news, according to Isaiah. Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness. Now, quickly, let's listen to what Jeremiah has to say. Jeremiah 5, also preaching to Judah and Jerusalem. Verse 18. Nevertheless, in those days, says the Lord, I will not make a full end of you. So he just itemizes their corruption, their rebellion, and the curses that they deserve. And then God says, nevertheless, despite all of this, I will not make a full end of you, Judah and Jerusalem. You should be wiped out, but I won't do that. Why? Because I'm in covenant with Abraham. I'm in covenant with Isaac. And I'm in covenant with Jacob, with Israel. Now, this covenant that I put in place with Moses, it's going to work one way or the other to get you to a place where I can fulfill the promises to the fathers. And that's why you children, I'm the Lord, I don't change covenant. That's why you sons of Jacob are not destroyed. So I will not make a full end of you. And it shall come to pass when you shall say, why does the Lord our God all do all these things? Why does the Lord our God all these things unto us? Then shall you answer them, like as you have forsaken me and served strange gods in your land, so shall you serve strangers in the land that is not yours. And we could go to Deuteronomy. Because this is exactly what Moses said. This is exactly the curse of the covenant. That if you are unfaithful and you do this thing, then you will be scattered. And you'll be taken to other lands and you can serve these strange gods there. And you will be brought to your knees. Or you'll be destroyed. Declare this in the house of Jacob and publish it in Judah. So again, Jacob is not forgotten. Although he has divorced the northern tribes... They're going to be brought back in through the covenant that it remains in place and intact with Judah. Declare this in the house of Jacob and publish it in Judah, saying, Hear now this, O foolish people. Can God's people be foolish? And, and do the prophets call God's people foolish? 
Hear now this, O foolish people, and without understanding. Listen to the echoes of Isaiah, and we'll get to Isaiah 6, which, which establishes this, which Christ himself referred to, with which the Apostle Paul referred to. We have to understand this. And Jeremiah repeats it here. You people without understanding, which have eyes and see not, and have ears and hear not. This is the curse. This is the curse. And they're going to remain under this curse until the abomination that makes desolate. And then finally, this curse will be lifted. But they will have gone through the ringer. Do you not fear me, says the Lord? Will you not tremble at my presence? Which have placed the sand for the bound of the sea by a perpetual decree. So we actually covered this in the Psalms, how God is managing the whole creation and it's mysterious. But he's there doing this so that it cannot pass. And though the waves thereof toss themselves, yet can they not prevail. Though they roar, yet they cannot pass over. So we just covered this in, in book four of the Psalms. But this people have a revolting and a rebellious heart. They are revolted and gone. So, and, and, and people come to me and they, t- the Jews are evil and you don't understand. They read the Talmud and they hate Christ. And you're not telling me anything I don't know. You're not telling me anything that's not in the Bible. The Bible tells us they're evil. But the Bible also tells us they're his people. And he's in covenant with them. And one way or another, he's going to make them successful. And if we understand, if we believe God and believe the word of God, then we're behind God's agenda. And we have good news for Judah. We have good news for Jerusalem. God will not cast you aside forever. God will not destroy you completely. He's going to establish you. This is the gospel, according to Isaiah. Verse 31. And the strong shall be as tow, or, or refuse, or trash, and the maker of it as a spark, and they shall both burn together, and none shall quench them. So if they insist on being rebellious, Malachi says there'll be ashes under the feet of the righteous. Now, the, just the first part of chapter 2, which I think is just puts a bow on the whole thing, that despite all of this corruption, that God doesn't hold back. He, he just lays it all out. And I'm sure if there were to be another book written on the acts of the church today in, in this modern world, God would put all, all our sins out there. But it doesn't mean that he's abandoned us. He, he, he just, the Bible is a very real book. And these are his people. And they, this is their state. And yet he says this. This is the good news. The word that Isaiah, Yeshayahu, the son of Amoz, saw what? Concerning Judah and Jerusalem. <laughs> this is the same, same people. This is all about Judah and Jerusalem. And it shall come to pass in the last days, and we often read this about the feast, but let's be very clear. This is concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Let's not get into this replacement theology where we have nothing to say about the Jews. We just read this as if they don't exist. No, this is concerning the Jews. This is a vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. And shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. God is saying, look, I'm in covenant with you, Judah and Jerusalem. We are in covenant together. And one way or another, these promises that I've made are going to be fulfilled. So this nation, and this city in particular, is going to be glorified. And the Lord's house 
shall be established in the top of the mountain. God is going to live in Jerusalem. And it shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow unto it. The nations are going to find Jews and say, oh, you're a Jew. We'll come with you. We heard God is with you. And we we want to hold on to you and, and follow you to Jerusalem. This is the future. And many people, here it is, many people shall go and say, come you, they're talking to each other, and let's go up to the mountain of the Lord. We, we need to do this. We need to make a trip to Jerusalem. To the house of the God of Jacob. So God associates himself with Jacob. And the whole world is going to acknowledge he's the God of Jacob. We need to go to Jerusalem. Because we'll, we'll actually learn what the purpose of life is. And how we should live this life. Uh, we, we'll go to the house of the God of Jacob. And he will teach us his ways. He's going to be very generous. He wants it through Judah and Jerusalem and through Israel. The whole world will be blessed. God said to Abraham, through you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And that's what's happening now. God fulfills his word. And he will teach us his ways and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law. That's where it will go from. It will be ruled by law, not ruled by rhetoric. And it won't be what everybody thinks and everybody's ideas. It will be what God says. It will be Torah. And it's gonna, it's gonna come out of Zion, the faithful city. And the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This is the vision. And he, God, shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people, many Gentiles that were fighting against his people and had an agenda to destroy his people. Well, he's gonna be on earth and he's gonna rebuke them. He will rebuke many people. And, and all these designs that they had to destroy, Judah and Jerusalem, which God used the the wrath of Satan and the designs of Satan and the hatred that was in these people. God actually utilized that to drive Judah to repentance and to purify Judah and ultimately all the tribes of Israel so that he has this nation now that has been that has gone through this purification process. Physical human beings on the earth that are going to be regarded by other physical human beings on the earth who wanted to destroy them. And now, God is going to rebuke these people for their designs to surround Jerusalem, to destroy the Jews, to remove them from the land, to say that they have no business being there. And that's, that's the future. That's what we're going to watch in the news. Now, now you know, we had um, close to four years of no wars in the Middle East. No, no, excuse me, no, no additional wars. No, no, no wars initiated by the previous administration. And for that, he was hated. Because human trafficking... Drug trafficking, these are big business, big, big business. And war is the biggest business of them all. So many get rich from war. So now, fasten your seatbelts, Middle East is going to explode. Middle East is going to go down fire because we have to get back to business. People need money. You know, we, we've been making lots of money through war. Let's get back to business. So the Middle East is going to explode. And the Bible tells us this. And the focus, ultimately, Satan's agenda is to destroy the covenant people, so that God is unable to fulfill his covenant. But God is going to come and save Zechariah 12 and 14. God is going to come and save Judah and Jerusalem. And he's going to fight on behalf of these folks and and empower them to fight on their own behalf. And he's going to rebuke these Gentiles that wanted to destroy Judah. And they shall take all of their weapons that they wanted to destroy the people of God with and destroy each other as well. And they're going to take that and they're going to beat these swords that they wanted to behead, do the beheadings. 
all of this beheading that they had in mind, and some of it they actually accomplished, but they're not going to accomplish it at all. And and what's left now, they're going to, all this rage that they had and this desire for blood, this bloodthirst, it's gone. And now you either put down, take your sword and turn it into a farming instrument, or you deal with the wrath of Jesus Christ who's on earth at this time. They don't want that. They're going to say, okay, we put down our swords, we're going to turn them into farming instruments. Their spears into pruning hooks so they can now tend the, 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 the fruit of the trees. And nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they war- learn war anymore. This is now, this is over. This is the history of man set aside. And, and here, right here in, in this opening of the, the book of Isaiah, here in first Isaiah, we have the gospel. This is great news. This is, this is phenomenally good news. How can we say that first Isaiah is just full of curses and judgment? We're not reading it carefully. Isaiah, Back to front, from beginning to end, God saves. He comes and he saves. This is what he does. So let's, let's pause there. A wonderful, wonderful, exciting book. Amazing, amazing prophet. Uh, the prophet Isaiah, Yeshayahu. Uh, God saves. <clears throat> this is who he is. And uh, I, oh, I didn't give uh, Pastor Murray the link. Let me do that. Sorry, sorry, Murray. I was just going from meetings all day in meetings and then straight into this. So, uh, Pastor Murray, I'm going to put this in Slack for you. My apologies, brother. I apologize for that. Uh, so anytime you're ready. Um, so Pastor Murray will join us. I will look here to see if I see anything in YouTube. I don't. We did get one question and uh, I, through email. I did get a question and uh, it has to do with the um it has to do with the word of god and so the, the name of god in fact and i'll just um share this let me just share this question uh not the question but a resource so uh oh great there's pastor murray i think let me just see here Stream. This is what happens when we do things back to back. But here we are. Pastor Murray, greetings. Hello, Pastor Adrian. Good to see you. <laughs> good to see you as well, brother. How are you? Very good. Very good. good. Uh, thanks so much for joining and apologize that I didn't send you the link earlier. Oh, that's okay. So um, let me just check in. How's the day? How's the week? How's the family? Yeah, everything is good here. i uh, got some uh, uh, warm weather here, some beautiful, well, to us it's warm weather. Uh, you know, <laughs> it's mild. It's degrees Fahrenheit. And, uh, uh, beautiful, a couple of beautiful days. How about yourself? Yeah, uh, like you, enjoying the, the milder weather, enjoying the fact that we can get out a little bit. They've allowed us, our, our overlords have allowed us uh, out of the house a little bit. Uh, so enjoying that. Yeah, our, uh, almost like being uh, uh, given some uh, prison yard time for an hour a day or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> Amazing. Um, so I, I did have a question, came by email, and uh, it had to do with... Um, the pronunciation of the sacred name of God. So I wanted to kick off with that. Uh, sure, if, go ahead. if you don't mind. Yeah, absolutely, yeah, that'd be great to kick so off. So let that. me uh, kick off with that. And so uh, as we were doing the Psalms, we um, I showed how the, the sacred name of God is, is Yehovah, Yehovah. And there was some pushback 
that I received by email on the, the yod, giving the Y sound. And, and the, the, the premise of the pushback, which, which we appreciate, we, we appreciate these questions, was that Hebrew actually does have a J sound. And the yod in the original Hebrew doesn't have the Y sound, it actually has the, the J sound. And so I'll just uh, share a resource here. And if you don't mind, Pastor Murray, I'll just expand my camera yeah, here. Yeah. Um, so here's this site that says it's written by some uh, Christian organization. It's, it's not really clear who the author is, but it says the sacred personal name of God the Father. And it's a myth that there was no J in Hebrew. So it just goes on to say, basically the gist of it is this, that the Ashkenazi Jews who migrated into Europe, developed a type of Yiddish form of, of, of the Hebrew language. And in this form of Yiddish, the Ashkenazi take, took the Yod and made it a Y sound. There's another set of Jews, the Sephardic Jews, who uh, here, they apparently retained the pronunciation of J for the Yod sound. So rather than Yehovah, the argument is it should be Jehovah, because Yod should take the J sound, because of these Sephardic Jews. So Sephardim, the Sephardim, is the name given to those Jews who lived in Spain, Portugal, the Mediterranean Basin, North Africa, and the Middle East, and their descendants. Sephardim is the Hebrew name for Spain, so that's why they're called the Sephardic Jews, where most of these Jews lived before their expulsion by the Muslims in 1492. Sephardim are, Sephardim are distinct from and smaller in number than the Ashkenazim, the Jews of Central and Eastern Europe and their descendants. So this is basically the, the gist. And then there's some uh, categorization of the letters that puts the Yod, which is here, it puts the Yod in the uh, palatals, which are, um, so the, the J, this is sort of the argument to support that so the Sephardic use the Yod, and the palatals come from the, the front of the mouth, the just sound, and therefore it's clear that uh, the Hebrew name for the sacred name for God, therefore should be Jehovah and not Yehovah. Okay, so this is the, the, the statement. Now, I contend that, in fact, the Yod is the correct pronunciation, or the Y sound is the correct pronunciation if we look at the original Hebrew, the classical biblical Hebrew, that this whole argument about the Sephardim and the Ashkenazim and the categorization of the, the letters, this is all to do with the, the Hebrews migrating and some going to Spain and other. And so it's, it's a, a language issue, but it's not speaking directly. There's no proof that the Sephardim are actually speaking the biblical Hebrew. And this categorization is not a biblical categorization. This is a human categorization. If you look now, where do we go? What's the best source for the original pronunciation of the Hebrew? Uh, in my research now, it's the, the Jews of Yemen, the Yemenite Jews. <clears throat> so if we look at this, the Yemenite Jews in Wikipedia, the Yemenite Jews are the Yemeni Jews, are those Jews who live or once lived in Yemen. Between June 1949 and September 1950, the overwhelming majority of Yemen's Jewish population 
was transported to Israel in Operation Magic Carpet. So this is when they were brought to Israel. After several waves of persecution throughout Yemen, the vast majority of Yemenite Jews now live in Israel. So they were living in Yemen. They've been transported to Israel. While smaller communities live in the United States and elsewhere, only a handful remain in Yemen. So persecution, again, this is Muslim persecution. The few remaining Jews experience intense and at times violent anti-Semitism on a daily basis. And this is going to come, this anti-Semitism, this violence is coming to Jerusalem. Uh, they're, they're going to be surrounded by armies. The, the, the Quran instructs the followers of the Quran to absolutely destroy and wipe out and subjugate the Jews. So that's what these Jews have been subjected to. Yemenite Jews have a unique religious tra- tradition that distinguishes them from the Ashkenazi and the Sephardic Jews and other Jewish groups. They have been described as the most Jewish of all Jews and the ones who have preserved the Hebrew language the best. So this Sephardic Ashkenazi contention, uh, neither of them are, are preser- preserving the original biblical pronunciations. The Jews of the Jews, the, the, the holders of the original pronunciations of the biblical Hebrew, belongs to the Yemenite Jews. Yemenite Jews fall within the Mizra category of the Jews, though they differ from the Mizrahi Jews who have undergone a process of total or partial assimilation to the Sephardic liturgy and custom. So the Yemenite Jews are not going with the Sephardic customs, which have been uh, influenced by Spain. While the Shami subgroup of the Yemenite Jews did adopt to the Sephardic influence right, this was mostly due to it being forced upon them and did not reflect a demographic or general cultural shift among the vast majority of Yemenite Jews. Okay, so that's the, the background. Uh, let's go now to the religious traditions. Yemenite Jews and the Aramaic-speaking Kurdish Jews are the only communities who maintain the tradition of reading the Torah in the synagogue in both Hebrew and Aramaic Targum. So they have retained the original language. Most non-Yemenite synagogues have a specified person called the Baal Korah who reads from the Torah scroll when congregants are called to the Torah scroll for an aliyah, a reading. In the Yemenite tradition, each and every person, each person, called to the Torah scroll for an aliyah reads for himself. So everybody has to know how to read the scroll. Children under the age of bar mitzvah are often given the sixth aliyah. Each verse of the Torah read in Hebrew is followed by the Aramaic translation, usually chanted by a child. Both the sixth aliyah and the targum have a simplified melody, that's why the children can learn it so quickly, distinct from the general Torah melody used for the other aliyot, the, for the other aliyahs. Like most Jewish communities, Yemenite Jews chant different melodies for the Torah, the prophets, the lamentations, the ecclesiastes, and the book of Esther. Unlike Ashkenazi communities, there are melodies for the Proverbs and Psalms. Every Yemenite Jew knew how to read from the Torah, every single one of them, not just certain specified ones, every single one of them, knew how to read uh, from the Torah scroll with the correct pronunciation and tune. So they, the, 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 these uh, Hebrew is very musical. It's very poetic. And there's a certain, all the, um, the punctuation is not just 
for the vowel markings or, or the syllables, but it's for the chanting so that you understand how to chant it. Well, they understand to do this without the markings. It's because the whole thing is an oral, written, uh, memorized tradition. Every Yemenite, every single one, knew how to read the, from the Torah scroll with the correct pronunciation and tune, exactly right in every detail. Each man who was called up to the Torah read his section by himself, didn't need somebody else. All this was possible because children, right from the start, learn to read without any vowels. Their diction is much more correct than the Sephardic and the Ashkenazic dialect. The results of their education are outstanding. For example, if someone is speaking with his neighbor and needs to quote a verse from the Bible, he speaks it out by heart without pause or effort with its melody. And so there's more here that uh, we could we could read. But um, I think there was just one other section I wanted to call religious groups. Um, I'll, I'll leave it for now. But um, you might want to just go ahead and read this. The Yemenite Jews. Um, yeah. Oh, Yemenite Hebrew, this might be a section. Yemenite Hebrew has been studied by scholars, many of whom believe it to contain the most ancient phonetic and grammatical features. There are two main pronunciations of Yemenite Hebrew considered by many scholars to be the most accurate modern-day form of biblical Hebrew. Although there are technically a total of five that relate to the regions of Yemen, in the Yemenite dialect, all Hebrew letters have a distinct sound, except for the Samic and the Sin, which are both pronounced with an S sound. The Sina'ani Hebrew pronunciation, used by the majority, has been indirectly critiqued by this particular rabbi, saying that it contains the Hebrew letters Jimel, the J sound, and Guf, which he rules is incorrect. There are Yemenite scholars, such as Rabbi Arusi, who say that such a perspective is a misunderstanding of his words. Rabbi Mazuz postulates this hypothesis through these Jewish, Jewish dialects of Gimel and Kuf, switching to Jimel and Guf when talking to Gentiles in the Arabic dialect of Jerba. While Jewish boys learned Hebrew from the age of three, it was used primarily as a liturgical and scholarly language in daily life, Yemenite Jews spoke in the Judeo, original Judeo Arabic. So the actual um, shifting of the pronunciation was only when they were talking to Gentiles. In their actual liturgy, they have retained the original pronunciation. So in all of that, when we listen to the actual uh, pronunciation of the letters, the only, the yod is not in question. The yod is a, a ya sound. So that's not in question. The Sephardic is an innovation. The Ashkenazi are innovative. They have, they have drifted from the original biblical pronunciation. So the Yad is not in question with the Yemenites. What is interesting, and I'm still studying this, is the, the Vav, the V sound, or the, the, it's also called the Wow. So is it a Vav or a Wow? And I'm still investigating this, but it looks to me more and more like the original pronunciation is not Yehovah, but Yehovah, that it is the wow, the 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 wow or the vav is actually wow, and I just want to verify this, but it looks to me like it should be Yehovah. Now, uh, for me, as I seek to understand, as I Pastor Murray, as I seek to understand this, I don't have this 
Jewish superstition that you cannot pronounce the, the, the name of God, it's secret, and if you pronounce it and mispronounce it anyway, God will destroy you. I, I think this is superstition, and it's not what God wants at all. And I think of myself, and think of yourself as your son. Uh, he calls you daddy, calls you dad, pa. But let's say in a religious ceremony, he has to actually refer to you as Pastor Murray. But maybe Murray is a difficult thing for him to say. And so instead of saying Pastor Murray, maybe he says Pastor Mori. And he doesn't quite pronounce it exactly right. When, when he comes out of that religious service, are you going to crush him? Or are you going to appreciate the fact that he's trying? And his, his, his vocabulary or his, his pronunciation is not quite right yet. So, so let's dispense of this Jewish myth or notion that you cannot say the whole sacred name of God. They should not say it if they're going to take it in vain. But don't prevent us, the children of God, from wanting to say our, our Father's name, His holy name. And so to me, it's, it's either Yehovah or Yehovah. And I'm now leaning towards Yehovah because of the Yemenite preservation. And I'm just verifying that. So, so that's my, my answer to the question. I hope the, the person who wrote me, they kind of wrote me a stinging uh, rebuke, uh, which I appreciate. But I would ask you, you know, we're here with a sincere heart. We, we do this out of the, 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 the love of God. And so give us the benefit of the doubt. Um, but thank you for the, the question in the letter. And this is what my research shows me. Uh, Pastor Murray, your, your thoughts or comments? Yeah, certainly appreciate uh, all the research you've done. And uh, as you said, you know, we appreciate the feedback from others, for sure. Uh, it's certainly not something I've done a whole lot of research in, so I definitely appreciate uh, those like yourself that uh, have gone into that. Uh, interesting that you say to, uh, you used the example with my son. Uh, there's a, a few places I've been, uh, uh, Pittsburgh area, Newfoundland, that they actually do say Pastor Maury. So, um, <laughs> So, uh, interesting. Uh, so a couple of questions related, uh, that have come through on that. Um, and a lot of, a lot of positive comments here on the discourse on the Tetragrammaton. So definitely appreciate that. Um, and I think, I think you sort of answered this in your, in your question is, uh, can we, uh, why can't we address God as our father? And I think, I think you covered that, uh, yeah. you know, uh, um, there's a difference between uh, um, using his name in, in a in a ceremonial way versus in a relationship way, and Correct. you know, um, calling him our loving father or Abba, uh, Abba which, yeah. which is the, the the biblical the the Hebrew term. Yeah. Uh, certainly can do that. And and there's an intimacy that we enjoy with our father. And and you know, I was thinking about this earlier. All the gods of the nations, they present they're presented as very powerful and very crushing. But none of these gods are actually beautiful. The true God is, is beautiful. It's like when you think about his character and his relationship with Christ and Christ's relationship with him and their relationship with us and, and, and their love, it's, it's a level of beauty that is profound and astonishing. And you were in your sermon and, and uh, Deacon Jan's sermon, the, the, the praises that, that are bestowed upon them, it's not out of force, it's out of awe. That when you're exposed to God, th- there's just a reverence that is automatic. And, and so we, we praise this God of ours in, a, in an intimate relationship that brings to our attention His beauty. And, and we're in this intimate relationship. Now, we call Him Abba, 
We call him dad. We call him father, our father. But when we're presenting him to the Gentile world or we're in a formal ceremony, this now is inappropriate. But the, the Gentiles must know the name of God and the gospel must be preached accurately and he must be presented as the Holy One of Israel and, and his name is known throughout all the, the Gentiles. The whole world will know his name. It's not going to be a secret. So I think, there, there, as you said, there's an appropriateness. Are we in a ceremonial situation or are we in an intimate setting? And to be able to com- communicate uh, to the Jewish people uh, this gospel right. and, to, and to be able to refer to him in a way that they would understand is important, too. Um, the question as well, uh, just uh, trying to keep track of the questions here uh, related to, to language, is the, is the language of the kingdom uh, going to be Hebrew? What are your thoughts on that? That is an interesting question, and I have thought about this a little bit. Uh, I don't have a categorical answer, but here's my take. Um, the Hebrew language in the form that we have it today, it's not a pure language. Um, it's not, and, it, and it's something that evolved from the Canaanites. It was the Phoenicians who started this an original idea of building an alphabet based on the sounds of common objects. You know, you, they looked at an ox, and that ah, that begins the word ox, whatever their, their word was, so they drew the head of an ox. And that meant, whenever you see that, say ah. Uh, for whatever they had as a house, they drew a house. And that meant ba, ba. So, so this is how the alphabet came, the, the eyes, ein. You know, they drew, drew eyes, and that meant I. So they very innovative. They created this alphabet. And it is from that Phoenician Canaanite alphabet that the Hebrew alphabet emerged. From the Hebrew, the Greek alphabet emerged. From the Greek alphabet, the uh, English alphabet emerged. So the Hebrew language did not just come down from heaven as a pure language. It actually evolved out of the Canaanite language. And there are things about the Hebrew language which are awkward. Uh, and actually the Greek language improves upon. Now, having said that, I think there are words in the Hebrew language that when the pure language is given, we will still say those same words and we will still pronounce them the same way, but we will have this pure language. Uh, So I think the symbols might be different. The alphabet might be slightly different, but I think how we pronounce God's holy name will be the same. Uh, You know, words like shalom, things like this. I think these words will still be the same. And there's many scriptures that sort of point to things in the future when God is here. Uh, but I think we will have a different language, but we will still say the same, uh, the same words, but they will be captured with a pure language. That, that's my take. I mean, your thoughts on that? Yeah, um, I, I don't really, I guess I don't really have a take. As I said, I haven't uh, done the studies you've done in, on the Hebrew language. I know you, uh, you've uh, done some extensive study. Uh, that certainly uh, uh, seems um, logical to me that there's some, there's some sort of uh, back when God was was communicating with with Adam, um, and how that would have got passed down through through Seth's line, um, that uh, um, that 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 would have uh, been how God would have uh, communicated. And there's some sort of you can go back far enough that there's a, a purity somewhere uh, there. Correct. In fact, you make a very interesting point, uh, Pastor Murray, that um, all of the communication that happened. Prior to the written alphabet, they didn't need a written alphabet to communicate. 
So it's when they got the written alphabet that they took all of this communication and started to document it. But the communication did not depend upon the documentation. And so in the same way, in the future, I think we can remove the documentation, replace it with a new documentation, but the communication remains the same. And it's just sort of relating that back to your, your, your uh, passage on the, the Yemenite Jews um, and talking here right now about, about uh, verbal communication. I think that speaks to what God laid out for us in the Torah and how to pass this stuff down. It was, it was always be talking to your children uh, about these things. Um, so, and you, we can see how, uh, just in your example there with the Yemenite Jews, how everyone could open up the Torah and read it because it was how they were, it was how they were taught to read. Um, and, and what I found fascinating there was, you know, you and I are having a conversation and I'm like, oh, this is in Isaiah. Give me a moment while I search for that. Meanwhile, you'll just say, yeah, it's Isaiah 53 verse three and you'll just quote it. Uh, there's no need for you to refer to the Bible. You have the whole thing memorized in its exact distinct detail and pronunciation. Yeah, it's fascinating. Uh, um, we certainly have a lot to learn as far as that goes, for sure. And I think that has to happen in childhood. Like you've got to, you've got to teach them from childhood. Yeah, you know, it, you can liken it to my kids know two languages because we we uh, raised them in the the Quebec part of Canada. Um, I, I learned French as well, but you learned it older. It's much easier to teach to teach a, a young child when their um, brains are a little more elastic, so to speak, and, and right on. easily taught. And can I just um, share a scripture from uh, Lee Forst? Uh, mm-hmm. And so he has a scripture here to share with us. And it's Zephaniah 3, verse 9. For then, not now, then in the future, will I turn to the people a pure language? The implication being, they don't have it now. In the future, I will do this. I will turn to the people a pure language that they may call upon the name of the Lord to serve him with one consent. So this is something that's coming in the future. It's not here now. So this is, uh, this, there is going to be this pure language. It doesn't change what is going to be said. It's just how do we actually say it? What's the documentation that we use to support it? So I appreciate that, uh, Dave. Very good. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, just to uh, uh, take this just a little bit further, to say that it's, that it's Hebrews, we know it today, as you said, I think that would be incorrect. I don't think we can, we can go near there. In fact, the name Hebrew comes from one of Abraham's descendants, Eber. So, yes. um, um, e- even, even the name Hebrew is post Abraham. So, exactly. um, um, what, what exactly God will call it, who, who knows? Uh, but, uh, it will certainly be, um, obviously we're all looking forward to, to that, that, uh, opportunity. And, and what are your thoughts here from our brother Reg? What was the common language during the Tower of Babel? Uh, it would have been something along the lines of what we're talking about here with what, whatever was passed down uh, from um, uh, Adam to Seth. We know uh, when you go into Genesis 5, it talks about Seth being the one that um, uh, praised. I covered it in a sermon once, so I just want to flip real quick to it. That they proclaimed that Seth's line were the ones that proclaimed the Lord, which really speaks to, uh, you know, Cain's line were the metallurgists and the musicians and that sort of thing. So, uh, Seth's line was the one that uh, almost like the, the evangelist, so to speak, is what we would call them yeah. today. Um, uh, so it, it stands to reason that it was it was some sort of uh, um, related language, or, or uh, I don't know how I don't know how pure it goes back to Adam, but it would have been. Something, some dialect. And, and, and Aramaic and Hebrew are incredibly similar. 
They're different languages, but they're incredibly similar. And so Aramaic, in fact, was the most popular language of the time. It was sort of like English today. And, and Hebrew was a, a, a subset or a dialect. Uh, so maybe it was something closer to the Aramaic, which is very close, in fact, to Hebrew. So I don't know exactly, Brother Reg, but um, certainly the Tower of Babel is where the languages are now introduced uh, in order to divide uh, or, or contain uh, what the people were trying to accomplish. And just to real quickly, thanks to uh, our Brother uh, Don out there that did correct me that uh, Eber was pre-Abrahamic. That is true. Um, uh, just uh, fishing for it. Right. While I was thinking. So right. thanks for that, that correction, Don. Uh, we do have a question here from uh, uh, Brother Jeff in Ohio. Um, and can you expand on the difference between an oath and a covenant? Uh, they seem similar in nature. Yeah, here. that's that's interesting. Uh, so off the top of my uh, mind here, I, I would say an oath is a promise. In fact, let me just turn to a scripture first, uh, and then we'll use that um, to answer the question. I can find it. I think I can. Um, <clears throat> just give me a moment. Uh, while, you're, while you're going there, I, and just to sort of back that up, I think, I think of, uh, what I was going to say will we'll sort of dovetail with that. The Hebrew word for oath is Shabbat, and it actually does mean to promise. Uh, uh, it is related to a covenant, but I think it's more more along the terms of a covenant. Uh, sorry, of a promise. Which is, I think, which is where you're going. Covenant is a little bit different, but yes. So, so thanks for that. Uh, so, what came to my mind is Hebrews six, where where God says here, um, wherein God, willing more abundantly, He really wanted to do this to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of His counsel. It, it's impossible for this to change. This plan that God has. So we're, we're the heirs, or, or the Judah and Jerusalem, Israel, and us by being grafted in. We're the heirs of this promise. Now, God really has this great desire for us to understand the immutability of this promise. So he confirmed it by an oath. So there's a promise which is now being confirmed by an oath. And why did he do this? That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie. So what are the two immutable things? It's right there in verse 17. First, there's a, a promise, and then this promise is impossible for God to lie. He's made a promise. But on top of this promise, he's confirmed it by an oath. So, so that there's now this oath on top of the promise where God swore to Abraham, I am going to do this. So, uh, so there's the promise and then the oath on, that sits on top of the promise. Uh, and both of these things, it's impossible to God, for God to lie. So therefore... We who are in this covenant can have strong comfort. No matter what happens, this counsel, this plan that Isaiah is sharing with us, it will never be uh, abdicated. And so we can now have this hope that God will in the end uh, come through and be uh, uh, faithful to his promise. So to me, and when I read this text, the promise to me is embedded in the covenant. That in, in covenanting with Abraham, this is this promise, it's this, this formal agreement that he has entered into with Abraham. And then I think that was uh, later on in Genesis, he then swears to Abraham on top of this covenant that he's already entered into with him, an oath that he's really going to do this thing. So, so I, see, I see the oath as uh, kind of one-sided, I, I just tell you I'm going to do this, 
Whereas the promise with, or the covenant is this, this arrangement between two parties. I can swear an oath to anything, but a covenant is going to be between two parties. And God is saying, I absolutely, I'm going to do this. So that, that's sort of my initial response. Yeah, and that's just exactly what I was going to back you up with there, is that the, the, God made that covenant in Genesis 12, as you've been referring to throughout Isaiah here. Uh, but then in Genesis 15, that's where he put Abraham to sleep and did the ceremony with the with the uh, the birds and then walked down the middle uh, as that second immutable promise. So, yeah. but, um, but I think what's really critical for us to understand is that a covenant, God, God renews the covenant. He has another. He's going to fill the the people of God uh, with the Holy Spirit so that they can live up to the covenant. But he never backs out of a covenant. So, so this, this, this agreement that he has entered into with Israel and specifically with Judah, it's, it's forever. And he's going to be the Holy One of Israel forever. And then he's sworn an oath on top of that. There was a, uh, so I've lost uh, visibility here of some of the Facebook, just the way my computer works, but there was a question, uh, from Brother Rod relative to the Talmud. And uh, uh, I apologize, Ron, if I don't have the question exactly right, but uh, it was, why is the Talmud, why do some consider the Talmud so bad? Um, <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, so first of all, the Talmud is basically, I would describe it as a commentary on the Torah. So it's not scripture, but it's treated by many Jews as scripture and, and actually holier than Torah. And it kind of puts this um, this hedge around the Torah. But now we're dealing with men's opinions. And there are some very terrible things in the Talmud, specifically about Jesus Christ, that are unspeakable. Uh, so the, the, the Talmud is Christ saying, full well, you reject the word of God for the traditions of men. And I remember when I was with uh, speaking with a, a Jewish friend, and, and he shared something with me, and I'm like, I'd never heard that before. And he was shocked that I hadn't heard it. I, I thought I know the Bible pretty well. So he said he would prove it to me. Uh, and so he showed it to me. He opened this Bible and he showed it to me. And the Torah was in the middle and the Talmud was all around it. And he was showing me from the Talmud. And I, I could, I burst into laugh. I laughed out loud. And I said to him, that's not the Bible. That's not the Torah. This is just a commentary on the Torah. And so he, he realized that what he actually thought was in the Bible wasn't in the Bible. And I think we have to be careful if we have Bibles, with commentaries built into the Bible, we need to be very careful about that. Commentaries are not the Bible, but there are some very uh, evil teachings in the Talmud and, and, and teachings specifically against uh, Christ. And even bringing that right down to a, a, a modern day example, uh, all, most of the churches of God produce magazines, booklets, that sort of thing. Um, that's, that's another related type of Talmudic thing. Um, it can be exactly it can be it can be generally speaking everyone tries to stay true to the bible but it is a commentary on what we perceive or what we interpret the bible to be saying so again when you're uh, studying any any organizations including ours our booklets you need to cross-reference and go through the bible and make sure that that makes sense just like uh paul, paul said about luke uh, in acts that i wrote about the bereans that they checked up right on exactly right on so, you know, even if books, but even preaching, yeah, I'm listening to this man say these things. Uh, Paul is teaching these things. Let's go and search the scriptures to see if these things are so, because anything that they say, it's going to be backed up. Uh, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 14? 
that uh, the prophets are subject to the prophets. So you're never going to have a prophet come along like Muhammad, uh, teaching things that absolutely contradict every other prophet before him. This, this doesn't, this never happens. Uh, so anybody who claims to be a prophet, they're going to preach in alignment. So we went, we were in Isaiah and we went to Jeremiah and they're totally aligned. So all the prophets are totally aligned. And when we're listening to preachers, we have to go back to the scriptures and ensure that it's aligned. Because what, if they're, what they're saying is true, I should be able to go to any book in the Bible and see, see, be able to uncover for myself more information that supports what they're saying, not, not the opposite. Uh, thank, thank you for that. I uh, definitely agree there. Um, another question here, and it's the last one we've got so far, and we are getting up close to 9 o'clock. Uh, from Brother Alex. Uh, uh, did Christ die on a cross or on a stake? Uh, can I give that one to you? I think you probably have an answer for that. And as uh, Alex just um, uh, asked the question, it reminds me, I didn't thank everybody, including our brother Alex, mm-hmm. who joined us for our Kumo Space Social on Sunday. That was a lot of fun. It was fantastic to meet brethren that we've seen your names, but uh, we didn't know we weren't able to put a face to a name. Uh, so I think that was just a fantastic, very successful event. And we thank you uh, for following us, for supporting us, and for participating in the social. So thanks for that. Uh, your thoughts on that question, uh, Pastor Warren? Yeah, before I do, just wanted to echo your comments there. It was uh, certainly a, a lot of fun. Uh, had people as far away as uh, as, as England and Australia yeah, yeah. and uh, the southern U.S. And I'm sure we'll do it again and certainly look forward to that. Um, it, Based on all of the research that I've done, um, it certainly seems to me that it's a stake, that it's a single pole. Um, um, now, where, where we get into um, um, this, the debate is when the New Testament or the, the apostolic writings use the word cross. Um, now, the, their use of the word cross um, really is, is metaphoric in nature. Um, uh, when you know, take up your cross and follow me doesn't necessarily mean this. It's really the, the burden of, of following in Christ's footsteps. Um, um, I don't think it was a it was a T cross. I think more evidence or not points it to being a stake. Um, but uh, for for me, um, we shouldn't be worshiping either either uh, image, whether it is a stake or it is a cross. Um, and really the, the lesson is that Christ died on that, on that piece of wood, whatever shape it was. And, um, again, the, the use of the word cross in the New Testament for sure is metaphoric in, in the way it is being used. Um, what are your thoughts? Uh, I would have to agree with you. Um, haven't done an awful lot of research into that. And I think, um, I totally agree that this is not the issue. This is, you know, to get into an argument with somebody over was it a cross or a stake, uh, this is completely uh, unprofitable. The, the point is, God himself left heaven, came to earth, gave up any sort of reputation, and came to earth as the Holy One of Israel to live according to Torah, to fulfill the demands of the covenant so that he could, so that God could officially and legally and righteously give to Israel all the promises in the covenant. And, and his hands were tied because these people violated the covenant, therefore they activated the curse clauses. And, and his promise was that if you obey my voice, then you can live in the land and enjoy the benefits of the covenant, but they wouldn't obey his voice. So Christ said, I'll do it. And he came to earth and he lived by Torah completely. 
and satisfied all the conditions of the covenant so that in a righteous manner, God can now give the covenant promises to Israel. But he came as the representative of Israel and said, now that I have satisfied the conditions of the covenant, I will not take the benefit. Put the curses of the covenant on me and allow Israel, if they accept me as their savior, to come through me into the covenant uh, promises. And so this was sort of the, the great exchange that he came to earth to satisfy. And this is, this is mind-blowing. And, and this is why I say that the, 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 when we understand God, he's, he's beautiful is such an understatement. We're in awe of him. He, he, there, there's no God anywhere that can be articulated in, with such beauty as the God, the Holy One of Israel. And so he came as the Holy One of Israel, so now he's going to be the Mighty One of Israel. The whole thing is mind-blowing. And to get distracted by cross, stake, let's argue over this, it's like just, wow, we're, we're missing the point here. Yeah, um, uh, and the beauty of the gospel, as the, the more we dig into it and the more layers of the onion we peel back, uh, it, it is just, it is, as you say, mind-blowing. Um, and when we, uh, as we saw this last past Sabbath with going into Revelation 5, no wonder all of the, the hosts of heaven um, um, fell down to worship uh, uh, the, the Christ, the Messiah, mm-hmm. because there was finally someone worthy to to take God's plan to the next level. Very, very good. Uh, Pastor Murray, thank you so much. I always appreciate uh, the time. And brethren have no idea how much you do behind the scenes and your commitment. I, I certainly feel blessed uh, to work alongside you. So appreciate you taking the time to do this. And, and to just, it's just a joy. I appreciate, uh, the kind words and obviously, uh, we all appreciate, uh, all of the, uh, the hard work you do going into putting into these studies and all the, the, the stuff in the background that you and your wife do to put, uh, Sabbath services on her, uh, every Sabbath is definitely appreciated. So. Praise God. Thank you so much. And brethren, so this Sabbath again, we hope you'll join us. We thank you so much. It's so, so fulfilling for us to dig into God's word, to understand it more more perfectly, uh, and to have people who care, who, who we can share it with. So so you bring a lot of joy to us. Uh, we thank you for this. Uh, good night, Brother Murray, and uh, we will see you, hopefully, uh, every God willing, we'll all be together again on Sabbath. Take care. Awesome. Take care.